The way we pay for things has gone through a revolution in recent years. While some of us may still walk around with a wad of cash, more and more consumer transactions are made with credit cards and with alternative payment systems like Venmo, Apple Pay, and even cryptocurrency. Money in the 21st century is increasingly digital. My guest this time is at the center of this competitive and fast-changing field. Welcome everyone to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. I'm Ranjay Gulati, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. Michael Meebach is the CEO of MasterCard, one of the world's largest payment networks. Until 2006, MasterCard was a privately held company owned by the 1,400 banks that issued its cards. Meebach joined the company four years after it went public to direct its operations in Africa and the Middle East. He's also held senior positions at Citibank and Barclays Bank. I asked Michael to start us off by giving a snapshot of his very successful career before MasterCard came calling. Ranjay, I spent 17 years in banking and uh, my last role in banking was running a uh, British bank across their African business. So I thought, it couldn't get any better than that. You're basically responsible for a continent, multiple li lines of business, engaging with every part of the economy and society. And I thought this is the best possible job there is. And then I got an offer to join MasterCard from a previous colleague, boss at Citigroup. And I thought that was not an interesting offer initially because who wants to be in payment? It felt very singular. It felt very one-dimensional. It felt a lot less complex and interesting and useful than what I was doing before in, in that role at this other bank. But you know, through engagements back and forth, a bit of a courting period, it dawned on me that payments is a lot more than it, what it sounds like. It does power the economy. And it was the added complexity of, or the added fascination of joining a company that's only been a public company for four years. And before that, it was an association. So I felt like I'm joining a very, very large startup that's been born large. Um, now, that's kind of a weird one and a fascinating one. So in the end, um, I figured, let me just jump in. Technology, it matters across everybody for businesses, for people, and so forth. And it was in Africa, so I could transport that experience and see how to make something of it. The brief for my uh, boss at the time was, we've ignored a continent, and I need you to build a business here. Okay, now that was interesting. So I said yes. Now, one of the words, as you took this job and had Middle East Africa in your footprint, one of the words that seemed to shape your thinking and where you were going was inclusion. And you really made that kind of a centerpiece, financial inclusion as a centerpiece for what you were going to do in Africa. Tell us how you came to that realization and the role of payments and inclusion. And what does that mean to you? What did it mean to you at the time even? The word has been used in many different ways. So back in banking in Africa, 
it was pretty clear that that as a bank to grow, you needed to grow your addressable market. And that goes beyond corporate and commercial banking. It, there was a significant opportunity in consumer banking, but only the affluent were banked in Africa and everybody else was not. This was the mass majority. So we were trying to wreck our brains in banking on how to do that. Uh, but at the time, it was all branch-based banking. How do you even reach these people? It was the it was the early days of something emerging that was mobile-based financial services. So when I moved over to MasterCard, I said, okay, we didn't even have a business. And I said, you come late. You have a competitor that's active on the continent for some time. How do you open the door? And it was a conversation with a set of governments who were telling me the same story I had experienced in banking. I said, we want to pull our citizens into the economy, the formal economy, out of the gray economy. And we need to give them tools that work in a life that is non-technical. It's rural. There's nothing, no infrastructure. And, you know, when people want to go and get their hands on cash, they have to travel and walk to get to an ATM. And then there's no way to spend it and so forth. So we said, okay, if that's the problem to the government, if you enter a market late and you help the government solve their problem, maybe you can make up time. You can make up lost time as a competitor. And that's exactly what we did. So we try to create a business case around that, a proposition for consumers and small businesses who live in rural Africa. That's how it all started. And then it turns out it was a really terrible business case because the return on investment for building these tools and putting the infrastructure on the ground and in a world where there was not even significant mobile coverage and so forth was a very long-term payback. And the CEO of MasterCard at the time, my predecessor, uh, Ajay Banga, you know, he and the board took a view at this and said, well, Africa is going to be the strategic theater of the future. We have not been there. If this is a 10-year business case, it is okay. We need to build for the long term because at one point in time, Africa is going to host the most significant population in the world. We're okay with a 10-year business case because we have many other business cases in other parts of the world that support portfolio. Michael, why don't you go ahead? I recall a board meeting where at the end of the board meeting, it's, we played Shakira's It's Time for Africa and said, this is the time to do this. We're going to jump in. It's a bad business case, but it's the right thing to do. A year later, we were in Johannesburg in January 2012, I think, and we were standing in front of a whiteboard in our office, and uh, Ajay wrote on the wall, doing well by doing good. And that kind of encapsulated that whole approach. It made commercial sense in the long term. Uh, we were pulling people in. We were empowering people and we're building whole economies. That was the starting point of something that then turned out to be a strategy for the company. And we evolved it from financial inclusion, which is a lot, is very access-based, to something that is now a push for financial resilience. So we added many more products over time and built this all out. And today we can look back and we pulled in over 800 million people into the formal economy as a company. That sprung off many other inclusive growth activities that we're now involved in, but it proves there's a strong connection between purpose and business. And today, when people join us, I spoke to our interns this morning, 800 is the cohort that joined us this year for summer. A lot of people come here because of that work.
companies that adopt a genuine, deep-purpose approach to their work recognize purpose as fundamental to the firm's very reason for being. It's an organizing principle that shapes decision-making and binds stakeholders to one another. Purpose is a unifying statement of the commercial and social problems a business intends to profitably solve for its stakeholders. I asked Michael Meebach to reflect on MasterCard's purpose. So let me first describe what we do. We power the digital economy. That is, I think, a simple way to describe what is going on. So we're in the business of digital payments, and we facilitate these payments, and these payments are at the back end of any value exchange online, in person. Broadly speaking, we're the operating system of the digital economy. Now, that's not deep purpose. That's an activity. But if you think what that digital economy does, take COVID. What happened in COVID? We all got locked up. We were locked up at home and life came to a standstill. Well, it didn't because the digital economy kept us all, not all, but many people who had access to it at least, kept us going. You could order your uh, vegetables online if you so chose to do. You could do most things in life online. And that is what we ensured continued to happen. We didn't miss a step in the digital economy during COVID. And a lot of that is the payments industry that made that happen. So if you look back and said, we were powering people's lives. So from running the digital economy, if you lift up, uh, we do empower people to do what they do. When they wake up in the morning, nobody says, I want to pay. But they say, I want to do something. And we make that happen because that relatively complex process, uh, we highly simplify and make work. And our brand logo, which you will remember all, hopefully, is two interlocking circles. They stand for trust, so it's going to work, and I can trust this. I will not be defrauded, and this stuff works. So that bigger purpose of you're behind the whole economy and you make people's life work, that resonates with people because it's inherently a needed activity, and people can believe in it. You can explain it to your grandmother. If you join here as a young, you know, those interns today, they can go home and say, we're doing something really useful at this company. That gives purpose. Then you go into activities like financial inclusion, which go beyond the everyday running of the business that in itself is already very useful. And you pull people in and you create a digital economy that works for everyone. Now that really resonates. And here, I think we've done good work in giving that sense of purpose. I want to go to the office every day because I do make a difference. And that is the difference. Now, how do you make everybody out of the 30,000 people that work here believe that? Now, there's a few few ways to do that. First of all, we all have different passions. So when, when we join somewhere, we are not an empty piece of paper. We have maybe NGO work that we're doing, volunteering that we have been doing, you know, at school, at home, uh, wherever. And you come here. We've always invested quite a bit of energy in connecting people with their passions here at work. So if you wanted to continue to do that, we give you the space to do that. We have volunteering programs, we give people time to do that, but then we say, well, if you get, you get to continue to do whatever you wanna do, but there is bigger work that we do as a company and we do it at great scale because we have truly global reach. If you wanted to continue your passion, but also get involved in our financial inclusion work, so that your everyday work is connected to something that has a bigger impact beyond this business that resonates with people. So you know, a lot of people raise their hand in MasterCard and want to do a night job. 
they do some engineering work during the day around our products. And then they want to get involved in work related to financial inclusion in our center, which is a nonprofit fund that we have created on the side of our business that supports some of our doing well by doing good work, so to say. Um, people love doing that. So you give them a chance to connect to that. And we went a step further. When, uh, after our leadership transition here in my first year as the CEO, this was uh, you know, the very dark days of COVID. We were at a time where I think a lot of longer-term work on sustainable growth, on climate work was pushed back to deal with COVID and its effects. So we said, uh, this is a good time for us to ensure that we don't lose sight of that. So we changed our compensation mechanism to include an ESG-oriented component in a formulaic fashion as we just generally run our compensation program. If you do well, you're gonna get, you know, it's gonna turn out in a pretty predictable way for you. And we said, if you do well now, and you do well on our sustainable activities on top of that, you're gonna look even better. And it's gonna work the other way if we don't make any progress. And the goals we had defined initially were around carbon neutrality. It was around gender parity in terms of pay. And it was around financial inclusion, things that are very close to what we do. In our industry and the broader industry, we were one of the first companies uh, to formulaically put ESG into compensation as well. So there's a whole range of ways to take the purpose that resonates, that's there, that's what we do. We articulate it in a simple way, build a digital economy that works for everybody, empower people, power economies, all the way down to compensation. And we always learn. We always learn on this. Now, this is a journey that will never end uh, because we do believe there is a deep connection between doing the right thing and uh, running an inclusive growth-oriented business at the same time creating shareholder value. They are, for us, very closely related, and our investors tell us that. They like that about us. Is there a personal story, Michael, that you saw of a, in Africa or elsewhere where you realized suddenly that, you know, what I do in payment systems and inclusion – it really matters. I've seen this person's life changing because of what we do. My team and me, we created a, a program for us to all experience how our, the payment solutions that we had created would make a difference in people's lives. So we went to Soweto and we went into a registration center that is um, designed to hand out essentially a digital identity to people. So uh, along with a digital account, so they could receive their salaries in a digital fashion. And uh, the digital identity was driven by voice print. So you could authenticate yourself with Ranchi's voice or Michael's voice, and it was clear that you didn't need anything else, and only you would get the money. People weren't getting their full salaries. It was handed out in cash before, and then maybe they got a fraction because somebody took a cut of it. So that was a change. But then we wanted to speak to some people and hear their stories. Now, the center and the technology is all very great, and we were like amazed to see it work. But then we talked to this woman, and she says, come to my house. The house was a, um, it was tiny, you know, metal sheets, uh, the walls, and you come inside, and it's, it's clean and very neat, and there was a little high-top counter, and on it was a wooden box. And that just stood, stood there, the wooden box. And we said to her, well, what's what's in that box? It, um, she says, oh, let me show you. So she opened it up, and it was a 
plastic card with a chip in it, which was the representation of her digital account with the voice footprint. It has the MasterCard logo and it. it says, this is my treasure. That's why I put it in this box. And I know nobody can steal it from me because it's only my voice. Because you know, some of the members of my extended family, money was always, you know, I had to guard it very closely. It was gone. And this takes care of all of my worries. I treasure it. So we left and we felt, you know, all that engineering work, that thinking work, investing a lot of time in understanding how you build a business in a context that we didn't know before. Because we could have taken solutions from North America, from Europe, and tried to import it, and we didn't. We built it up from the ground, and that was the proof point. That was the proof point at a time that we're on the right track. And we turned that experience, in fact, into something that we have done for many years thereafter, which is some journaling. So you understand people's lives. What does the day in the life of somebody in Uganda look like or in Egypt? What tools do they need? And today you see Africa leapfrogging because they're not held back by legacy technology. And they're, they're having now solutions that are far ahead of what we have in the West. So today the world of mobile-based financial services is really on fire in Africa in a positive way. And I think we built some real muscle. So we have a financial inclusion lab based out of Nairobi, which informs our, our technology labs, our innovation labs around the world. During his time at MasterCard, Michael Meebach has been a driver of the company's transformation in the digital economy. But it can be really hard for big, incumbent companies to move as nimbly into the digital space as they need to. Meebach says when MasterCard went public in 2006, it was already ahead of the game. And in 2015, MasterCard established digital labs to help client companies with product innovation and digital transformation. The company has been digital from its outset. Everything we do is technology. We didn't have manual processes that need to be digitized. Our challenge as a company was in payments, rapid technology change. So what was already digital, you know, that was always the next kind of technology. If we just look back the last four or five years, the change we've seen in the last four or five years has been more than the 50 years before. So you had card-based payments on certain technology standards. Then suddenly there was real-time payments. There was blockchain. There was wallets. There was biometrics. There was you name it. So picking which one of these to invest in and future-proofing the company for that next wave of change and the next wave of change, that was really our challenge. So a colleague of mine at the time who was the, the head of what we then called emerging payments was tasked to do that. Um, so we set up these labs and we gave people no purpose in life other than you need to innovate and look around the corner. That's the only thing they needed to do. They didn't have a budget to revenue deliver or anything like that. They had a budget to spend and we tasked them to spend it. So that was the starting point of our, you know, staying ahead of digitization journey vis-a-vis -vis digitizing ourselves because we were essentially a, a component to digitize our customers' business. And imagine we serve everybody in the world. This is the commercial bank of Vietnam, if it exists. So that would be one to the largest global marketplace that is also our customer. And one, you know, the latter one works at lightning speed and a tiny bank in an emerging country 
you know, is at the other end of the spectrum. So we need to be able to do all of that. How do you do it? You abstract a lot of the complexity of technology into our own company. You invest in the head of the curve into technologies that they might not be ready just yet to use. So speed. And it, it requires a mindset of knowing what you don't know and always looking for what is the next technology wave. So following the smart dollar, where is PE money going? Who's investing where? And being very clear that we don't have all of the answers, but we're a network. You can invite others in to innovate up on our network. So it's a mix of all of that. That is our, has been our journey. I was part of that as the chief product officer before I took this role with my colleagues. And that is a deeply ingrained mindset in MasterCard today. Professional paranoia, look left and right and what is gonna come at us and we gotta be ahead of the curve because we power the digital economy. We gotta use that technology. That makes it, makes it very exciting. So I, I love doing that all day long. On that note, because this is kind of like uncertainty, you know, now you're talking about fast moving, changing, which also the other word there is risk. And sometimes there is also what I would call fear because, you know, you're doing things that are unknown. They're not going to work out necessarily. Tell us about kind of a specific moment or two where what you had to do, decisions you had to make were kind of big bet decisions that were kind of scary. I mean, they could have cost you a lot of money, a reputation, and right, right. maybe even cost you. Yeah, that, that is, that's very true. You know, you can have 10 ideas. You should assume that a good chunk of them don't work out. And, you know, depending on your mindset, some people might choose not to take that risk and rather keep doing what works really well for them. For us, the lay of the land before we turned to become a public company, we were an association for 50 years that was largely doing one thing and doing that very successfully. Card-based payments for consumers. Highly concentrated, but highly scaled. That is like if you're an oil-producing nation, and that is the one thing you do, and oil was always wanted, why would you diversify away from that? It works. So... The risk-reward trade-off isn't so clear. Just keep doing what you're doing. Um, back after the IPO, there was also the pressure to deliver on the next quarter and the next quarter. So taking risks became even harder. But we, you know, everything that I said uh, around future-proofing the company, we built out that muscle over time. And we said we are in the business of taking risks. But how to decide which risks are worth taking versus others? And here's an interesting uh, point, and, and it's a juncture. This was 2015, 16. I had just come back from AMP. Maybe I learned a lot at AMP, but uh, we were, which is the advanced management program that you referred to earlier. AMP is the advanced management program at the Harvard Business School. It's an intensive course of study at HBS designed to bring about a full-scale change that empowers executives to create and renew competitive advantage for their organizations. Michael was one of my students in AMP. We are doing a trend analysis, which we had gotten very good at. Every year we looked at where's, where's the puck going, and we're trying to understand that. And back in 2015, there was a time where real-time payments became real around about that time. The UK, one of the first countries to have payments at a button arrive in another bank account instantly. We said, that's a juncture in the road. 
We have always been in card payments. Should we get into these real-time payments, which was a parallel technology? It was new flows that we were not involved in. Massive investment. You know, it worked well for us. Why do it? And we worked for it for quite some time. And I recall going into a board meeting and pitching the idea of let's do something that we know nothing about. That was the pitch. <laughs> But it matters because this is where a majority of the payment volume today is. So it's a tremendous price. We haven't quite figured out how to get there, but should we not get into it? it of course, we, we, we should. It's fascinating how the board conversation across the 60 minutes that we had allocated to it spent about five minutes on the if answer. Um, should we do it? Yes or no? And the answer was yes. And the other 55 minutes was, all right, so how are we going to get after this opportunity fast enough? And it was pretty clear that it was very risky because we didn't know anything about it. There were no established economic models and so forth. So today, nine years down the line from that, and meanwhile, real-time payments is pretty established. It has become a reality, but many other technologies have emerged. And that same question has repeated itself. Should we get into a blockchain, blockchain-based payment? What about central bank digital currencies? Do we need to power them and so forth? So we learned quite a bit of that at the time. And quite a number of bets have gone wrong. But we chose the number of bets at a given point in time very carefully and said, how much can we sustain? If this goes, if 50% goes wrong, okay, fair enough. Today, we've codified our culture in, in something called the MasterCard way. And it has basically three headlines. It talks about creating value for customers and us, growing together for our customers and us and amongst our colleagues across the company and moving fast. We took these three headlines and we spelled out in simple English what kind of behaviors we should see in the company. And one of them was learn and pivot. This was under moving fast. It was one of the ways to bring that to life. Learn and pivot. There are things that have gone wrong. This one could have gone badly wrong. It hasn't gone wrong because we are now in a bunch of payment flows that we haven't been in before. But I tell you, when I walked into that board meeting, I was I was scared. Um, yeah, this this felt like a lot of risk to take. Um, but it felt like, hey, you know, this technology makes a huge difference, and that's where the volume is. So we're gonna give it a go. little bit about leadership now and you know you've talked about this in various forums uh, you've talked about not being transactional but having a kind of a compassionate or empathetic leadership model mm -hmm. you've also talked about the decency quotient you know mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about kind of as you have evolved as a leader what has emerged to you is the really the essential job of a CEO the decency quotient, um, this is a term that uh, that my predecessor established. It basically means doing the right thing. And that is something that we wrote down. It's a cultural statement that we try to live here every day. And I use that a lot. I find opportunities to show that you know, this is the right thing. We're not cutting corners as a company. We're doing things in a thoughtful way. So that is a strong element of our culture. And I try to say to my colleagues uh, in the leadership team and across the company that that is 
what everybody should live, who is, a, who is a leader here. It's one of our leadership principles. But it starts always with the person. So the empathy part, I, I probably were on, was on my own journey as a manager, as a leader. I think COVID did something in all of this. The COVID part, today, I look in the mirror and I see this with quite a number of my colleagues. I think we're all a little more empathetic because this was a time where the world as we knew it stopped to exist and we had to relearn a lot of things and how you engage and you know, reading body signs wasn't a thing anymore. The impromptu conversation to find out is Ranjay actually doing well or no, that, that was just not a thing. So you had to make an effort to understand and to listen and to feel what is going on. And I, I think that empathy part was a later stage kind of boost, came for the wrong reason. I don't. I think we could have all done without COVID, but I feel there's more more empathy in MasterCard and certainly in me as well. And it's comes, it comes back in spade. If you really recognize the person as the person on the other hand, it, it sounds very motherhood and apple pie, but it, it does make a huge difference. Michael points out that for many of us, our new highly remote work environments have a downside. Empathy has become more challenging. Connections take a more concerted effort. We don't bump into each other by the water cooler or chat in the hallway after a meeting the way we used to. You have to be very purposeful about wanting to understand and wanting to be empathetic because video has the, the downside of reducing you to be very transactional. I'm not going to do a video call with you, Ranji, to ask you how you are. It's generally for a purpose. So... I think it's very important for us to make sure and that's something we push for in the company. Um, we're better together than not. So finding that right balance of taking the positivity of empathy and other things that we have learned more so over the last three years, but also taking some of the flexibility aspects that we have also started to appreciate it, you know, being able to juggle between home and office and so forth. So Empathy, more of a late, later, even bigger insight how that makes a difference. And, you know, uh, some people say that how do you balance empathy with accountability? You know, I want to be empathetic, but I also need to hold you accountable. Right. And some leaders struggle with that. You know, they feel that somehow empathy makes them weaker and harder for them to be able to hold others accountable for what they need to get done. Hmm. I think as a leader, um, empathy, you understand the other person better, why people are successful or less successful, what, what drives them to be more successful at a certain period of time. All that, I think, does help. The accountability side of things, I think you can be empathetic, but still own up to joint goals and what you want to achieve. And you know, if you say, this is what we want to do, and if we don't get there, well, you know, if you have made an effort to understand each other, you can understand better why that has not been the case. But also, you can pass the tougher message in a somewhat more caring but still very candid fashion. I think hiding behind distance is not going to allow you to give that message because the message is generally not one of, okay, this hasn't worked, this is the end of it. Generally, the message is, okay, this hasn't worked, what do we learn from it and how do we do this better the next time? And empathy for that is really helpful. When you give strong feedback and you do it in a way that is caring but candid, yeah, that's a pretty good formula. And um, I, I certainly feel that works. 
I think what helps is how does you know all of this live in an environment where people feel the need and the right and the freedom to say what they mean. Um, so they get even that tough message also is being set. So psychological safety in, in a team environment as a leader creating that, I think that's really important, particularly in very fast-changing worlds uh, with a lot of tech changes around us. Imagine there's somebody at the table that sees the risk coming and feels not compelled to say something because it might not be thought through or it might trigger a conflict with somebody or so forth. So empathy, being candid, all in the context of psychological safety, speak up. That's, that's the best way to get through these somewhat complex times. Behind every business leader, there is a story. A life journey with mentors and salient moments that shape and inspire them. I asked Michael Meebach to share some of the key experiences and sources of inspiration that made him the person and the successful CEO that he is today. So the listeners might hear a trace of an accent. So I grew up in Germany and I grew up in a, everything is good context. Middle class family, there was no problems. There was not any big crucible moment in, in my growing up during high school age. And um, I had the opportunity to leave that environment for a year to be uh, as an exchange student outside of Germany in Michigan, Midwest USA, back in 1984. And um, my host family, who've decided to take on this guy from Germany and they were not being paid for it or anything. That was they had not traveled outside of Michigan much. They, I think a few trips to Florida, and suddenly there's this foreigner, and it beats me today why they decided to do that. But you know, I show up, and it turns out this family financially they it was a little stressed here and there. So this was a big commitment to do this. And suddenly I'm from this everything works well kind of environment in a totally different cultural setting and in a family that had to make it work financially. And that gave me a very different perspective on life. It was, I think it was fairly narrow. And I came back and I said, wow, the world can be entirely different. So when I, when I started to go to university, I wanted to go far away and experience yet something else because clearly there is a lot else out there. Then I started to work and I started to work in an American company, Citigroup at the time. And Citigroup, and this is a, not again a, a crucible moment, but it's a series of things that Citi does in their culture. They want to make sure that their talent gets many different opportunities. In 14 years at Citi, I had like 12 jobs. Investment banking, consumer banking, commercial banking, front office, middle office, back office, different countries, and so forth. And I think all that journey from the exchange student experience to wanting to learn more and then having the zigzag career, things like that, it was just how they did it, and I loved it. Um, I think that makes me today a fairly curious person. And I, we try to do the same here at MasterCard. I was just saying uh, the exact same thing to our interns this morning. I said, guys, you got to take charge of your career. 
take every opportunity you can get to learn something else. I think that's that's the journey. So today in this fast changing world where I'm at the helm of this company, being curious and understanding what else might be coming, I think it goes back all the way to Michigan. That's a great story. Thank you. You know, Michael, as you think about looking forward, you know, we have economic uncertainty, political uncertainty, social uncertainty. What do you think is going to be the hallmarks of successful leaders in the future? I heard curiosity is one huge hallmark. You've talked about a few others. What do you think leaders need to really cultivate to take on what lies ahead? We're going through major turbulence in a range of dimensions. I think a certain level of humility is going to be essential. Accepting that you don't have the answers because it's very hard to predict where things are gonna go in that world, accepting that you don't have the answers, which should put you in a position to get a diverse set of thinkers and experiences around a table that set you up as a company to do a slightly better job in predicting what might happen and look around the corners. So, but it starts with this acceptance of we don't have all of the answers. You know, seeing the broader impact that the business can have beyond the next quarter, longer-term thinking, I think is important, and therefore make longer-term decisions that don't meander with the rapid changes that are there. And I think the best way to do this is to, to find contributions that a business can have that goes beyond the immediate P&L. To broader society and community. And you know, this is not wokeness. This is really insulating your business from shorter-term swings as to seeing you generally adding value as a company. I think that's that's very critical. Longer-term thinking, humility. I think th- this aspect of uh, that we touched earlier on psychological safety, creating an environment where different views can be articulated to make sense out of that complex world and people will have these different views. Those are the top three I, I would say will matter in a world like that. But, you know, who knows what matters in a couple of years, but that's what I can see now. <laughs> Very good. Michael, look, as your former professor, my wish for you is you go down as another legacy CEO, you know, who left a lasting mark at MasterCard, you know, who's fingerprints will touch this organization long after you've left. What do you hope will be your legacy at MasterCard? As you, I know you're not thinking about that at this stage, but what are the kinds of things you're trying to do that you believe are going to be transformative for this business? Right. So um, I think the purpose of what this company does I think we'll be around for a long time because value exchange, people have done this from the days of barter. So I think we're on fairly solid ground with that. But this is a value exchange reimagining that and how an economy is powered will be reinvented with increasing frequency. So the best thing that I, I can do that my team and me can do today for the next set of leaders who will run this company is future-proof it for the next period of change. So whatever we think, if we were to say, oh, we're all going to do this another, yeah, whatever, call it 10 years, um, then 
that's not the end point. We got to look 20 years out and see what do we have to do today. If you look at the success of the company today, a big part of the success is what leaders 10, 20 years ago have done in this company. And I think that's the kind of mindset that we have. We cannot be short-term. We got to think ahead and look that far out. I got the exact same question from one of our interns this morning. And I said, you know, I want to leave and with hand on heart say this company is future-proof for the next five years or so, depending on how fast technology will change at that time, whenever that might be. I think that's the key thing. If we, if we at that time, we say, well, you know, EPS has grown by X, Y, Z, and the stock capital market cap has improved by X, Y, Z, that's all important. But it could just stop that day. So I think we need to future-proof the company beyond that and have good performance. I wrapped up my conversation with Michael Meebach by asking a bit more about his experience in the advanced management program at the Harvard Business School. It's an intensive program where students live on campus for as long as seven weeks. Graduates of this life-altering experience leave better prepared to lead their organizations and handle the toughest strategic challenges they may face. What did you learn? You know, you went away for seven weeks and came to Harvard. You were already a senior leader, handpicked to come to the AMP. What did you come back with? What toolkit, arsenal, what did you come back with when you were away and you came back? I came back with more critical thinking. So during a AMP, we learned to question things in a different way because we're out of the context that we were in every day in our different jobs. And you could just see that there was Mary and Harry and Michael, and we were all thinking in a particular way that we were conditioned. And AMP breaks that open. And you start to think, well, this other guy is asking the, these questions, and you're doing case studies. And then somebody takes a totally different angle at, at a particular question that was on the table. Seeing how people thought about them in a very different way, uh, I think that just broke something up that was maybe over time got a little hardened as you do things in, in one way. It was... It sounds very big, but it was just a bit of a rejuvenation um, where you were going back maybe five, 10 years where you were asking more questions. There was also a personal life aspect to this. When at that age, this was 2014 for me, when at that age are you totally extracting yourself from your life for seven weeks? I was a lot more purposeful than coming back. You know, certain things you just take for granted uh, because you weren't there for seven weeks. You know, things go on and you need to kind of re-immerse yourself. And that was partly very hard, but you made also more of an effort to do it. And as you made more of an effort, you got the feedback that, ah, he's making an effort. Maybe I didn't do that before. So there was a personal side of AMP. There was a critical thinking side of the AMP, and there was some fantastic content and meeting, making lifelong friends. You know, I still, you know, I travel a lot as part of the role, and there's always somebody from AMP somewhere. Yeah, Michael. One very last one. I can't resist asking you: How have your family made a difference in your life as a leader, as a person? Your parents, 
your spouse, how have they impacted you and been part of the journey that you have been on? Right. So possibly many of the listeners would have worked for multinational companies, have been in different places. Uh, that's hard on the family. And uh, I think having a partnership that can carry that is is really decisive to make these these kind of paths. So, uh, you know, my wife, we're longstanding partners in supporting each other's career as dual career. That's been a big impact. So there, there's much in family, as we all uh, as we all probably experience. But, you know, I love the family. It's very important. And that's one thing that coming back to AMP, after seven weeks, what you take for granted and suddenly isn't there, I had a much greater appreciation for my family when I came back than I probably had before, where you just hang out together every day and you take it for granted. So that was a nice reminder that when they're not there, wow, you do miss them. Michael Meebach is the chief executive officer of MasterCard and a member of its board of directors. For more of my conversations with leaders in the business world navigating the 21st century business environment, visit my Deep Purpose website. While you're there, you can also find out about my book titled Deep Purpose. Companies that are serious about establishing and working towards a deep purpose find that it delivers game-changing results for the workers, the shareholders, and the larger society. So, visit with me at deeppurpose.net. This podcast is produced by David Shin and Stephen Smith with help from Jen Daniels and Craig McDonald. The theme music is by Gary Meister. I'm Ranjay Gulati. Thanks for listening.